We've spent the past several weeks in this sermon series considering the, the majesty of the incarnation. We begin with God. If you're going to think rightly about the God-man, it begins with your, your thoughts about God have got to be moving in the right direction. Uh, we've already established we will never know God fully. Uh, we can't know Him. He's incomprehensible, but we can know Him truly. He's revealed Himself to us in such a way that we can know Him. And yet, when the God-man comes, in Him, Paul says, as we read this morning in our prayer time, the fullness of God resided. What we could never know, what we will spend all of eternity exploring and still never coming to the end of it all, inside Christ, the fullness of deity was there. We spent last week uh, considering the, the nature of Jesus, just who He is. Uh, you and I are... Are, are, are so different than He. You and I have one nature. He has two natures. He's both human and divine. And we spent a good amount of time last week exploring just the, uh, the marvel and the majesty of Christ being fully divine and fully human. And being so even now at this point, uh, at the Father's right hand, He still exists as fully human and fully divine. Well, this morning, as we kind of conclude this Advent series, I want us to consider the question, well, why? We've got everything set up well. We've got our minds, I pray with God's help, moving in the right direction, right thoughts about God, about the gravity, the weightiness of God. We're moving in the right direction. Now we've been introduced to that uh, that Christ is the God-man, the fullness of deity dwells in Him, two natures in one, fully God, fully human, I think the only natural question then is, why? Why, why this, is this necessary? And the simple answer is this, because you and I needed a mediator. You and I needed someone to come between us and God. And Jesus, as the God-man, is the one and only mediator, one and only mediator given to us by God who can fill that role. It's probably an oversimplification to the answer why this is necessary, but for our purposes this morning, it will serve us well. The simple answer is this. Jesus is the only man who could get the job done. Jesus as the God-man. Jesus alone, as fully God, as fully man, has in that nature, those two natures, everything it takes to serve as a mediator between God and God's elect. A mediator, what is it? It's someone who stands in between two parties for the purpose of what? Bringing them together. As I look around the room, I bet you've served as a mediator in some capacity. I mean, some people do that as a profession, but probably if you've ever had two friends or two family members who are just at odds with one another, and because of your love for both of them, you have probably served as a mediator where you have said, hey, enough's enough, you over here, you over here, and I'm right here, and we're going to talk this out, and we're going to work this thing through. Maybe you've done it with your family, your friends, maybe in the workplace. You've served as a mediator. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what Christ has done for His elect. That's what Christ has done for the people of God. He serves as the middleman between a God who has been infinitely sinned against and whose wrath 
burns hot against humans who have sinned against him and and, and in between the humans who have sinned against God. Only the God-man could accomplish such a task. God himself has said, no one can stand in his presence and live. Only God can stand in the presence of God. He had to be the God-man in order to serve as a mediator. Now, in order to even fully understand that, we've got to think about our predicament, which we already read this morning from Genesis chapter 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, everything that's seen and everything that's unseen, all that is. He created all of it, and he created man in his image, the pinnacle of his creative genius, to have a unique relationship with him, to love him, to know him, to serve him, to walk with him, to commune and fellowship with him. And God said all that he had made was good. And with the pinnacle of his creative genius, God entered into a covenant, a covenant of works, which means, hey, as long as you do what I say, we got a good thing going. It's going to go well between us. And so within that covenant of works, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They have dominion over it to cultivate it, to grow it, to expand the the reign of God to the ends of the earth, beginning there to expand outwards, but it doesn't take long. God had given them instruction in the garden, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed. In a covenant of works, Where you work and obey, it goes well. You don't work and disobey, it's bad. God has no choice but to announce curses upon humanity, upon the woman, upon the man, and certainly upon the serpent. No longer were Adam and Eve, were humans at peace with God. The covenant of work had been broken. Death was the consequence. And yes, physical death, but much more than that, spiritual death. Dead to God. They broke the covenant. They were now dead to God. God was, in their hearts, dead. And so, the communion that they once enjoyed with God was broken. God was over here. Man was over here. And because they were representative of all the human race, the predicament that they found themselves in, they passed down to their children, to every one of us. As children, every human has been born at enmity with God because of the sin of our first parents. And you and I, by God's grace, know how the story continues. God did come. Following their disobedience, their breaking of the covenant, God did come. He did come in justice, but unexpectedly, simultaneously, He also came in mercy. Meaning when He came, He did what He had to do. You broke the covenant of works, you have to pay the price. And He lays out the curses upon them, but folded in the midst of them, there in Genesis chapter 3, is a very surprising promise, an unexpected promise. In a covenant of works, you don't look for grace. You get what you deserve. God unexpectedly reveals something about himself where in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, he says, 
because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The curse upon the serpent, which again is not about snakes and God. It's about the spirit of the serpent, of Satan. But he goes on to say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A very wonderful, unexpected promise that the wages of sin is death, but not yet. That's a kindness of God. That's a mercy of God. The justice of God would have demanded, it's over, you're done. This is a kindness of God that a seed would come who would strike the head of the serpent, which means at least this, not that they're not going to die, but not now. You will die, and there is a spiritual death, but God, for His glory, will bring about a child of this woman. He's going to do it because her children are going to be sinners. He's going to bring a child through her who's going to bring an end to all this. But who is the seed of the woman? Well, as we read from Genesis 3 onward, we can say broadly the seed of the woman represents all of God's people from Adam throughout the end of time, the true people of God, broadly speaking. But more to the point, more particularly, the seed of the woman is a person, and it's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior, the mediator between God and man. He's the one who's going to come in the fullness of time that we celebrate here in this Christmas season. He's the one who's going to come, who's going to come in between this God and these sinners and reconcile the parties. He's the door for the sheep into God's presence. He's the ladder. Remember Jacob's ladder? He's the ladder you have to climb upon to get to where God is. He is, to use his own words in John chapter 14, the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father, you're over here, but by what? By me. I'm the mediator. That's what these hymn writers are trying to capture, the gravity of the birth of Christ, the, the, the going on with the angels and the shepherds and the star and the, the holiness of the night. This is that promised Savior, that promised Messiah, who's going to come. And do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And so as there's no confusion, he says, it's the man Christ Jesus who came and gave himself a ransom for all. Why did Jesus come as the God-man? Let's not forget, that's the question. That's what we've been, this Christmas Advent series, beginning with God and working down to the person of Christ. Now we ask the question, why? So that he could fulfill this role. It all comes down to this. So that he could fulfill this role as our mediator, our middleman. And in order to do that, he had to be one of us. He had to be human. He had to be, Paul's word in 1 Corinthians, the second Adam. He had to, in his own humanity, obey the law. 
He had to suffer. He had to die on our behalf as a human. All of that had to happen in his humanity. But in order to take on the wrath of God himself that humans will take for all of eternity, for him to take it in one moment, he has to be God. And by being the God-man, in him the fullness of God indwelt. He was uniquely qualified for this. And we should keep in mind this has always been the case. Please don't ever think that there at Genesis chapter 30 when Adam and Eve sinned that God's plans were thwarted and God was like, oh no, they really messed up. What am I going to do now? Let me think this through. Before the foundation of the world, this was the plan of salvation for God's glory. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was foreordained, predestined, if you will, to be the God-man, to save a people for God, for His glory. Peter tells us this. This is not just us trying to connect theological dots. Peter tells us before the foundation of the world, this was who Christ was always going to be, the God-man. 1 Peter 1, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What was foreknown? The shedding of His blood. The shedding of His blood to save a people from their sins was not God's knee-jerk reaction to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 was always going to happen for the glory of God, for the exaltation of Christ. And in the fullness of time, you and I got in on the plan to be foreknown is to be foreordained, to be predestined. Jesus was chosen to be this mediator before the foundation of the world. What does a mediator do? What does a mediator do? If everything comes down to this, the God-man, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell so that he could be our mediator. That doesn't really complete the picture for us, does it? What exactly does a mediator do? Well, the church and the reformers going back into church history were a great help to the church in helping to clarify the role of a mediator. And they give us a threefold office of Christ as mediator. You'll you'll be familiar with it when you hear it. You just may not have connected all the dots to understand this is the mediatorial offices of Christ. What does a mediator do? Well, there's a threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And as we celebrate Christ and make much of him, oh, we're dependent upon all three of these. Number one, Jesus Christ as the God-man, is the prophet. The prophet. 
What's a prophet? That's a, it's someone who speaks truth from God to a people. Now, again, picture the middleman. A prophet is someone who speaks truth from God to a people. He's the middleman. Hebrews 1, in former days God has spoken through various prophets. Right? When we think about prophets, think of Moses, think of Ezekiel, think of Jeremiah. There's others, many others. And what did those men do? They speak the word of God to a people. Hebrews 1 says, but now, no longer does he speak that way. Now he speaks through Christ. He's the mediator. He's the prophet through whom the Father speaks truth to his people. In the Old Testament, sometimes it was a vision that was revealed to the prophet. Sometimes it was the law of God that was revealed to the prophet. Sometimes the prophecies pertain to the future, but it was the Lord speaking through somebody to his people. Well, now, there's no longer a prophet. It's the prophet. I get we give titles to people in churches. There are no prophets today. That is blasphemy. There is no prophet today but one, Jesus. Jesus is the prophet. The Old Testament told us this was going to be one of the offices of the Messiah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, who's he talking about? It's Christ. Jesus is the prophet of God. All other prophets that God used in days gone by were but a foretaste, a model of Christ. The prophets of old received the word of God and then communicated it. Jesus is the word of God. We preach Christ. We exalt Christ. There is no other message. No other message of morality, no other message of good works, no other message of positive living. God's message is one. It is a person. It is Christ. And we stand in need of the ministry of our prophet. In a world where we have so many voices, well-intended voices, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to portray them as demonic or as evil. Well-intending voices who are trying to give us counsel, who are trying to help us, trying to give us what they think life experiences have taught them. Please don't hear me saying we should be cruel and just not listen to people. But I am saying there's one voice that matters, and it's the voice of our prophet, the prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. And everything he is pointing to him, to himself. We stand in need of him. Why? Because of our ignorance. And I don't mean that offensively. I mean it, I mean it as a statement of fact. Apart from him, John tells us, we walk in darkness. Apart from Christ, we are blind due to our creatureliness, but also due to our, due to our sinfulness. We are blind. We need a prophet I am the way, Jesus says, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the light of the world, he says. Apart from him, we can't find anything. So this morning, as we think about 
Why did the God-man have to come? It's to be our prophet. A ministry we're still desperate need, desperately in need of. Are you spending time with your mediator? It is disingenuous for us to celebrate the birth of Christ, the coming of the God-man, and to ignore the voice of our prophet. To say we, we celebrate and exalt the God-man who's come. Well, why did he come? To serve one function as our mediator, as a prophet, which he does. He speaks to us every day. Jesus, the knower of hearts, right? John chapter 2. Many gave themselves to him, but he did not give himself to them. Why? He knew what was in their hearts. He knows the difference in our Christmas celebration between the calendar has told us it's time to celebrate the birth of Jesus and my prophet has come and I live upon his voice. Number two, what does a mediator do? He's a prophet. Number two, he's the priest, the priest. What does a priest do? Well, in the Old Testament, a priest is one who offers prayers and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. So again, keep the mediator in mind, right? So a system of offering and sacrifices and prayers made to God, but you can't approach God because of your sinfulness. God put priests as middlemen to offer that on behalf of the people. And so when we think about priests in the Old Testament, we often think of Aaron and his sons, right? Nadab and Abihu and some of those individuals who would go and offer up prayers on behalf of the people and make sacrifices to God. But even in the midst of the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood in the line of Aaron, the Old Testament contains promises of a coming priest who will not be of the line of Aaron. Now, in the Old Testament, if you're going to be a priest, you had to be of the family of Aaron. But there's coming one who's not going to be of the line of Aaron. And Psalm 110 is probably the most famous passage that promises this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. No, no, there are no priests after the order of Melchizedek. It's the order of Aaron. But Christ come not of Aaron, but from Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 5. So the Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the priest of God, the appointed priest of God to come and to serve him as a priest on behalf of the people. Not just to offer up sacrifices, the people's sacrifices to God. There, again, the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats really doesn't do anything. All those sacrifices that were made and the priest brought them before God, it's just a picture, really. Because the true priest is going to come not to receive your sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice. 
He's going to go to the cross. and He's going to die. He's going to shed his own blood and present that to the Father on behalf of the people. And that's the work of the priest. Jesus as the priest. He sacrificed his own blood at the cross. Taking God's punishment upon the human race from Genesis chapter 3 upon himself. Taking the full measure of God's wrath. Drinking the cup of that wrath to the full. Dying. And God receiving that sacrifice by raising him from the dead three days later. The priest made the sacrifice on behalf of the people of God. And it was accepted. Jesus as the high priest, made the sacrifice necessary to bring the parties together. That sins may be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to God. The effects of Genesis 3, done away with. It was there, the death, the cross and the resurrection, that the God-man Stomp the head of the seed of the serpent. And death, where's your sting? Evil, what are you going to do? You can't do anything. Christ is victorious. He has done it all. He sacrifices, he prays for our, his people. We've been spending a good amount of time in John chapter 17. What is that? But Jesus' own high priestly prayer for his church, his people. Brothers and sisters, we stand even now in need of a priest. Because we are by nature sinners, we need a priest. We need his blood. We need Christ. We need Christ crucified for us to be reconciled to God. If you've never gone to this priest, if you recognize your guilt before a holy God and you recognize that there's nothing you can do to fix it, good news, Christ came on that holy night, God-man, to come and to be our priest. Where do you go for the forgiveness of your sins? You go to the priest who shed his own blood at the cross. He paid the price. Our sins have created this great chasm between us and God. But our high priest has atoned for those sins. And not only that, he still even now intercedes on our behalf. You and I are as every bit in need of our priest today as we were upon the day of our conversion. You don't grow, well, I've got my salvation, now I, I just need to focus upon other areas. No, you cling to your priest because every day you sin. And if you don't know you sin every day, be introduced to God, to his holiness, to his law, to his way. As our mediator, Jesus is the prophet, the priest. And finally, he is the king. Jesus Christ is the king. A king is one who has supreme authority, the right to rule over the people. His job is to lead and to protect his people. And you think back under the Old Testament, there were a lot of kings, David and Solomon, just to name a couple. They were 
put in place by God to rule and to reign over Israel, to protect them from their enemies. But as with both the prophet and priest, whereas there are Old Testament examples of those, there are also Old Testament texts that say, but there is coming another prophet, another priest, and now another king who is superior to all kings before. 2 Samuel chapter 7, listen to God's promise to David concerning a coming king. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He's talking to King David here. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but with my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Now, there's some things in that promise there that make it clear that in the near future, when he's talking about particularly the sinfulness of the future king, he's talking about Solomon. But there's also things in there, he's also talking about a king who will reign forevermore. Well, Solomon's dead. And all the other kings who followed are dead. Who's he talking about? He's also speaking of the true son of David, the true king, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We, as a people who've been reconciled to God, are in need of leading and guiding, protection from our enemies. That's so much of what the book of Revelation is. And what is God's mean of protection for his church there in the last days and the church age in the book of Revelation? It's nothing you do. It's nothing I do. It's Christ. Christ the conquering king. The vision of him enthroned. That is the church's hope against all of her enemies. Because he is the king. We are, today are still desperately in need of our king. We are weak. We have enemies. There are things that are bigger than us. But Christ is the one. The all-conquering, all-victorious, undefeated, sovereign king. It is disingenuous to celebrate the newborn king and then to neglect the king in your daily walk, in your daily life, in your daily struggles. These are the reasons why God incarnate came. Because you and I need a priest, a prophet, a king because of our separation from God. And Christ came to be that, the prophet, the priest, the king. And only Jesus as the God-man could fill that duty. That's why the angels celebrated. That's why the wise men brought their gifts. That's why the shepherds came and sang the praises. 
That's also why Paul gave his life in service to the king. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because he is all. We must guard our hearts against just in this holiday season making much of the newborn baby without regard for its present day implications for our lives. If he's that on the day of his birth, those things, is he those things in your life every other day in your daily life, your prophet, your priest, your king?